On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Ken Collins about Methodism. And this is part of our brand new series that we're doing on a different faith traditions and learning directly from those within them. And we hope to promote a strong spirit of charity and curiosity within each interview that leads us to a better understanding. So we're going to cover all sorts of topics like what is Methodism? How does it relate to Wesleyanism? What is the core identity of Methodism and how is that connected to the great tradition of the church and how might that be different from other segments of Christianity? What areas of Methodism might be most susceptible to critique and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church, but we want to do that with particular virtues in mind. And those that we've really singled out and we've tried to focus on, tried to emphasize are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and a cheerful confessionalism. And as you know, part of this series that we've been doing here on, on different denominations one thing we've been trying to emphasize is both charity and curiosity. So curiosity in the sense that me and Brandon are Baptists uh, and a lot of these other traditions, we just don't know super well. And I, and I imagine, you know, 50 to 70% of our listeners are probably some sort of Baptist or pseudo Baptist in some way. Um, and they probably don't have as much of a inner workings grasp of these different denominations. And you drive by a church that's sitting on the, on the corner and saying, okay, well, that's, that's not Baptist. What is that? Okay. That's, a Roman Catholic or, or Methodist or something else, and trying to understand what do they actually think, what do they actually believe, and instead of us going and reading everything and reporting back to you, we wanted to say, okay, let's be curious and ask the people who are actually uh, part of these denominations, well, what is it that you think, what is it you believe, and why do you believe that? So we want to show both curiosity and charity because I think we're all part of this great uh, Christian tradition. We understand some things differently here and there, but we want to understand what those are and why they are. And oftentimes, we can have a sort of suspicious disposition that I think can sometimes be right, and sometimes it can be unhealthy, where we think, well, somebody's not doesn't believe like me because, well, they just don't want to believe the Bible or something like that. But you, you actually talk to them, you find out, actually, no, they have good reasons for what they believe, and they're trying to be faithful Christians. So I think this is going to be fun. We're going to be talking to Dr. Kenneth Collins today, which I'm really excited about. I uh, talked to Tom McCall, I don't know how long ago it was, and he recommended well, if we want to talk to somebody who is uh, understands Methodism and all that goes along with it, you got to talk to Dr. Collins. So if you don't know Dr. Collins, he's internationally recognized scholar in the field of historical theology and Wesley theology. So this would be perfect. He's given lectures in England, South Korea, Japan, Russia, Estonia, Costa Rica, Australia, and I, pretty much, I mean, you're looking at the list, every country that you can think of, he's been there. Um, he's, he's a graduate of both Princeton Seminary with a THM and Drew University with his PhD, and he's written and, and edited more than 17 books and tons and tons of articles. And his book, The Theology of John Wesley, Holy Love and the Shape of Grace, it's been internationally acclaimed for its scholarly competence and its readability. And it's used as a basic text um, by thousands of students here and around the world. So uh, a great uh I guess a book that you need to check out if you're more interested in this, as well as it being translated into Portuguese and Korean and currently being translated into Chinese. And his re most recently, his book, uh, The Works of John Wesley, Doctrinal and Controversial Treatises, number two, volume 13, 
has actually received the prestigious Smith and Winkoop Award from the Wesleyan Theological Society. And he's got recent works that include his editing along with Dr. Robert Wall um, of the Wesley One Volume Commentary, and he's written Jesus the Stranger, the Man from Galilee and the Light of the World, which was published by Seedbed Press in I guess August 2021, that's only a couple months ago. So right here, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, very recent. And he, Dr. Collins currently serves as professor of historical theology and Wesley studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. And he's been there at, in that position since 1995. And he's an ordained elder in the Kentucky Conference of the United Methodist Church and a board member of the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Now, Dr. Collins, uh, tell me a little bit before we get started into just trying to understand Methodism in general. Did you grow up a Methodist? If you didn't, um, did you change your mind at some point? What was the reason for that? Yeah, I grew up uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. I grew up in an Irish Catholic family in New York City. Uh, and so um, when I was an undergraduate in college at a large state university, um, I was seeking uh, because I realized I didn't fit well with the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, and I was actually exploring other religions. I was studying Buddhism at the time, uh, Mayana, Hinayana Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. And I happened to stumble upon a course um, workshop in the New Testament that was taught by a Lutheran minister uh, whose name is Arlo now. And at that point, I had not even, <laughs> this is amazing, I had not even read the New Testament uh, by that point. Uh, and we obviously did that in that class. So uh, I realized that the Christian faith was definitely an option for me. Um, and when I graduated, I went back to my parents' house uh, in Brooklyn, where I was raised. And on the way to their house, I saw a house that had scripture advertisements in the window. And I knocked on the door one day, and who met me was a retired Free Methodist minister. And he had me read John Wesley's 52 Standard Sermons. And that basically led to what you might call an evangelical conversion uh, a few months down the road. Totally changed my world, uh, an about face. Uh, it was incredible. I remember going through it. I said, I can't believe there is something like this. Now, why hasn't anybody told me this? Uh, you know, this is incredible. Yeah. Dr. Collins, maybe the first place we can start here is uh, the relationship between, so I'm thinking about the United Methodist Church, but then like the Wesleyan denomination. Are those two different things? Should we view those as as synonymous? And then maybe part two of that question, um, how would you define the core tenets of Methodism? Um, what sets Methodism apart from other Christian traditions? Yeah, um, I think we can start out by making a distinction between Wesleyanism on the one hand and Methodism on the other. Uh, I would see Wesleyanism as a broader category. Uh, so, for example, uh, in terms of the British context, there is the Wesleyan New Connection, you know, but there is the Primitive Methodist Church. In an American context, there is the Wesleyan Church but there is the United Methodist Church. 
There are Salvationists. There are there's the Church of the Nazarene. They would be Wesleyan, but they would not be Methodist. And then if you know the history of American Methodism, there would be the Methodist Protestant Church um, that wasn't even Episcopal. <laughs> they were congregational. They were congregational. And they eventually reunited uh, in 1939 when the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South came together. So in answer to your question, Wesleyanism I see as a broader category it relates to those theological traditions who are looking to John Wesley and Charles Wesley and Susanna as theological mentors in some way, in some fashion. They may not have Wesleyanism in their name, could be Pentecostals, for example, uh, and they're certainly not Methodists. Um, and then there would be Methodists who want to identify with this historic movement that goes back to England, 1729 at Oxford University that arose among four people, John and Charles Wesley and others, and then has worked its way basically around the world. Now, so, your second question is actually, uh, it's actually more difficult. Uh, and I've been thinking about it a lot. Uh, and, um, you know, are there, Methodist distinctives, you know, if we're just simply to focus on the Methodist tradition, how would we distinguish it from Presbyterianism, for example, or from Baptist belief, or from Eastern Orthodoxy? Um, that is going to be a difficult question, um, because, you know, some will say, well, there are Methodist distinctives, the doctrine of entire sanctification, for example, but if I look to Eastern Orthodoxy and their teaching on theosis and divinization, I mean, they have the substance of what looks very much like what Wesleyans would call entire sanctification. And the same thing with Roman Catholicism at the highest levels of sanctity, and Rome certainly canonizes saints, uh, that again is looking very much like what the the Methodists are saying in terms of the doctrine of Christian perfection. Um, some might say, well, maybe it's the doctrine of assurance, uh, the direct witness of the Holy Spirit with our spirit that we're a child of God, you know, Paul, Romans 8.16. But that's not distinctive of Methodism either, because that's also found in other traditions, Pentecostalism, for example, who will stress the direct witness of the Holy Spirit with our spirit that we're a child of God. And so this is a good question. And I think what we're going to see with Wesleyanism, Wesley himself, John Wesley liked to refer to uh, this faith as the primitive, primitive Christianity. In other words, going back to the basic teachings of the primitive church. Um, and if I had to say, okay, Yes, but what's the Methodist difference? There is. There is a Methodist difference. And it is one of intentionality, focus, and earnestness. Because Wesley wanted a ministry both to the church and beyond the church. He wanted to call the church back to its first love, because in a sense it had forgotten and that is holiness and grace. Uh, he wanted to spread scriptural holiness 
uh, across the land and to reform the nation, okay? And so there's a kind of uh, intensity, a kind of focus uh, that you see in Methodism uh, that you may not see in some other traditions, which are more broadly based. Yeah, that's good. So when, when I think of Methodism, how would you say that it's connected to the great tradition of the church? I mean, I know a little bit of the history of how it spawned um, through the work of Wesley, but what what are the things that connect it and keep it? Say we agree on all these things. I know some denominations don't don't major as much on saying, "Hey, look, we have things like the Apostles' Creed, and I see Creed in common." Is I'm pretty sure you guys would say, "Yeah, we agree all with all those sort of things." Um, yeah. Is there anything else? This is also an interesting question, Jordan, um, because I want to start out by saying that. Um, Wesleyanism, Methodism is doctrinally orthodox. It's doctrinally orthodox in terms of its Christology, uh, one person, two natures, affirming, you know, the work of the early councils, uh, Nicaea, Chalcedon, um, but, and also the doctrine of the Trinity, Wesleyans and Methodists are Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But now this is where it starts to get interesting uh, because you have to understand that Wesleyanism and Methodism arose after the Anglican Reformation. And the Anglican Reformation of the 16th century makes a difference because there was a reform of Christianity that had proceeded. So for example, John Wesley will write, and this will surprise some Methodists, but he wrote this, uh, that he wrote that general councils can err. They can err. Um, and then uh, he also uh, wrote uh, later on after he read Lord Peter King and Edward Stillingfleet, he questioned apostolic succession and he came to consider it a myth. Um, uh, and so I think, when I think of Wesley, I think of Lancelot Andrews, who in the 17th century, and I want to give you a little quote here, uh, he wrote, one canon reduced to writing by God himself, two testaments, three creeds, four general councils, five centuries, and the series of fathers in that period the centuries that is before Constantine and two after, determine the boundary of our faith. Well, I could see John Wesley affirming something like that as well. Uh, the councils, yes, uh, certainly the, the first four, because that has to do with the Christology and the Trinity of the church, but I doubt all seven. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for that. And maybe you as a Baptist would take exception to the Seventh Ecumenical Council as well in terms of its declarations about icons, for instance. I'm curious of what you think, uh, and, and maybe this is going to be different from person to person, but the posture toward Calvinism and Reformed theology among Methodists. So uh, George Whitfield, I, I believe, was associated with the Methodist movement, but my understanding is that he would have identified as a Calvinist, whereas John Wesley certainly would not have. Um, is that still something that, are there still, I guess my question is, are there still 
Methodist today who would identify as any any sort of Calvinist, or if, is that just totally moved away? Yeah, um, that is an interesting question. Uh, I would like to know uh, more about the British situation on this, because there may be still some small groups left of the Calvinist Methodists and the Lady Huntington connection going forward uh, through the centuries. But in terms of the American situation, uh, when we think of Methodists, we're basically thinking of Wesleyan Methodists. Um, there's been a lot of work done on George Whitfield of late, and Jordan Hammond um, has been doing some of that work uh, in terms of publication, and it's fascinating. Um, I myself uh, have found George Whitfield a very interesting figure. Uh, he was an important part of the great evangelical revival that was taking place in the 18th century that was a transatlantic phenomenon. Uh, and, and George Whitfield was the grand itinerant going back and forth from England to the colonies uh, and, and, and uniting these two awakenings together. In the colonies, it was the first great awakening that was happening. And Whitfield was preaching his way from New England down to the south uh, to Georgia, where he had an orphanage. But then he would make his way back to England uh, and do work there. Um, I think the differences between George Whitfield and John Wesley have been overplayed. I think they have mm -hmm. been overplayed. I went back and read uh, George Whitfield's sermons on the new birth, uh, and I could hardly tell the difference between a Whitfield sermon on the new birth and one by John Wesley. I mean, this is basic evangelical religion. And, you know, my Wesleyan background said, well, you know, George Whitfield is not going to stress freedom from the power and dominion of sin the way John Wesley would. And then uh, that was wrong because in those sermons he does. George Whitfield talks about a liberty that we enjoy in the new birth uh, as a result of God's grace. And so, you know, I think it's unfortunate that some of the theological differences between John Wesley and George Whitfield, and there were some theological differences, I, I, I think it's regrettable that they get overplayed because at the end of the day, they are brothers in the gospel, one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism. Amen. That's a good word. So uh, we've already talked about the relationship of of Methodists to the Universal Church, but I'm curious to know what you think is the greatest contribution of Methodists to the global church, to the Universal Church. Is it is it the ministry of John Wesley? Is it the the hymns that Charles Wesley has left for the church? What do you think the greatest contribution is? Well, um, I, I, here I'm thinking of. John and Charles Wesley, especially John, uh, as being of an ecumenical heart. A and that ecumenical heart grew out of their understanding of the gospel, which is the universal love of God and neighbor, neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. You know, as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, although I shifted the order a bit there. Uh, 
this idea that the good news of the gospel is a uniting thing. It is not a dividing thing. It is not a separating thing. It is a communion thing. It is a coming together because we have been forgiven. We can forgive the other, however that other is understood. And so no surprise, John Wesley wrote the sermon, The Catholic Spirit, and he didn't want to cause offense, for example, in terms of Roman Catholics, though they differed in terms of worship and polity. He didn't want to cause offense uh, in terms of Presbyterians, who also had a different polity uh, and a, a slightly different theology. You know, if thy heart is as my heart, then give me your hand. And I think that this has been practically expressed by John Wesley, and this is where the rubber hits the road, that he backed up with actions what he said. Methodism has an open communion table. Are you a Baptist? Are you a Presbyterian? Are you a Roman Catholic? Are you an Eastern Orthodox? You are welcome to come to the Lord's table with us because we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's helpful. So I, I think you've talked a little bit about this, especially with describing your journey from Roman Catholicism and then reading uh, all the sermons of Wesley. But one thing I, I've enjoyed asking throughout this series that we've done is just what makes this particular faith tradition really beautiful to you? What is it that attracts you to it that you find and say, this is something that I really just love about being a Methodist? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, it's this question is sort of flowing out of the one that we were just uh, tackling. Um, and here I'll just push it in a couple of different directions now. I mean, think of 18th century England, for example, which in a lot of ways was a very ordered and structured society. And, and maybe we could even use the language of class, okay? Class distinctions and these sort of divisions. When the poor identified with the Methodists, they had a status that they did not have in 18th century, 18th century English society. Because to be in the life of Methodism, to be in its infrastructure, in other words, to be a part of a class meeting or a band, your status was determined not by your wealth, your money, your education, or your social standing, but there was a kind of soteriological status, you know, your status as, as a Christian, as someone created in the image and likeness of God. And that is an enormously beautiful, that the poor were welcomed, they were loved. Uh, it's not a matter that the Methodists were among the poor, as Richard Heitzenrader says in the 18th century. No, it's rather that the, method, that the poor were among the Methodists. And that's a much different expression. It means that the poor were so loved that they were no longer the other. They, why? Because of the universal love of God created in nothing less than that glorious image of the image and likeness of God. And so that's part of the radiant beauty of Methodism, that it lives out that ethic. It lived out that ethic in the societies, the bands, and the class meetings. 
Dr. Collins, are there any areas of Methodism that you think are most susceptible to critique? So maybe there's something going on in the church today that you think opens the Methodist church up to critique, or maybe it's just... Well, uh, you're, trying, you're trying to get me in trouble now, I think. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I promise you can answer this any way you want. Or maybe it's just um, maybe it's something doctrinally that that is just uh, intrinsic to Methodism that uh, you get the most questions about. That's the most misunderstood. You can take that answer in any direction that you think is. Well, I think, uh, you know, your audience is wide and it's broad. And and the situation in the United States right now, especially in terms of the United Methodist Church, and, and what is likely to happen uh, in the days ahead that we're going to basically break up. Uh, this is what everyone is talking about. Um, and this becomes an area in which Methodism, especially American Methodism can be criticized um, and rightfully so. And I know the history of the Methodist church in America and it has had an ongoing problem from the time of Francis Asbury in the 18th century, um, shortly after the Christmas conference. I mean, Francis Asbury started out well, uh, and the early Methodists, uh, like John Wesley, spoke against the vicious evil of slavery, but then they temporized. They temporize later on as they get into the 19th century, and then all of a sudden that language is gone. Uh, and then you ask, why has this been done? Oh, we don't want to lose the South. Uh, and so for the sake of power, for the sake of numbers, they no longer were willing to recognize, as John Wesley did, inconsistency that black people bear that holy image of God, just like white people. And American Methodists compromised on that. And it lived out uh, 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 a less than good history because of that. And so it was compromised in the 19th century, tolerating slavery, uh, making arguments for it among Southern theologians, okay? So this is a departure. This is the corruption. Let's, let's be honest. This is the corruption of historic Methodism. This is no longer the love of God and neighbor. We're on another story. We're on another script. And in the same way, in the 20th century and in the 21st century, many would argue that the United Methodist Church has been co-opted, compromised by North American culture, and basically has switched out the narrative, the narrative of the good news of the gospel, that it's no longer, once again, it's no longer the universal love of God, no longer that, it's no longer the universal love of neighbor, now uh, a political narrative has replaced a theological one, and uh, a kind of political narrative has been embraced that's expressive of groupspeak, tribalism, the very antithesis of the gospel, and it will never lead to reconciliation. It will only lead to division and resentment, and that's exactly what's happening today. So, uh, on a little bit, 
different topic. I'm interested in understanding. So I think, I think it was Wesley who talked about the relationship between like theological authorities, almost like a three-legged stool. So if I'm wrong on that, I, I sound really dumb right now, but I think it was Wesley. So can you talk to me a little bit about the place of scripture and creed and tradition and just traditional ecclesiology with how we understand the things of God? Yeah, I think what you're referring to, it's actually, and this language goes back to Albert Outler, who would be like the dean of American historians, the quadrilateral scripture, yeah, that's it. reason, tradition, and experience. Um, and this has been suggested by some as a theological method, although we never find all four of those together in the same sentence in, in Wesley's writings. We do find uh, scripture, reason, and and I believe it's tradition, but we don't we have to go look for experience. Although Wesley uh, had a lot to write about uh, Christian experience, but this raises an important issue: How do Methodist theologians do theology? Who are the Methodist theologians today? Uh, do they appeal to the quadrilateral? Do they make a different sort of appeal? Um, it's interesting. But the Reformed tradition has many uh, first-class, world-class theologians. So does the Roman Catholic tradition. Methodism, you can count them on one hand, uh, are world-class Methodist theologians. And I think part of the reason for that is that we have been so practically oriented towards practical ministry that very intentional transformational ministry of, of preaching the gospel among the poor, gathering them up, gathering the harvest up into class meetings and bands, that we have neglected, you know, the larger systematic theology that other traditions are doing. And so then when someone comes along like a Tom Oden, you know, who is a, a great intellect, and he writes his classic Christianity, uh, we come to realize that this is not systematic theology, uh, but this is really something else, uh, because uh, in that piece, and I've written an article on this in the Wesleyan Theological Journal, uh, that it's basically dogmatic theology. In other words, the public theology of the ancient church, the first thousand years, being brought forward again and again to each succeeding generation. Well, that's not systematic theology. That's not speaking a, a relevant word to the 21st century. Things are changing. Anthropologies are changing. Look at the work of Yuval Harari in Homo Deus. Uh, Yuval Harari is uh, an atheist Israeli. Uh, he's a Jew. Uh, his anthropology has been emptied out, much like uh, C.S. Lewis was dealing with emptied out theologies in his day when he wrote The Abolition of Man. But now, according to people like Harari and others in the face of IE and all this information revolution taking place, a human being has been reduced to a node of information. And what really counts is the internet of everything where we are simply valued almost like in a matrix sense of being caught up in the, in the internet of everything. There are some very difficult anthropologies out there today. We need Methodist theologians doing the hard work of systematic theology because theology and anthropology are connected. 
if you empty out God, if, if you get utterly secular, if you move that direction, that has consequence for how you understand a human being. You basically emptied out what a human being is now. You're no longer acknowledging the image and likeness of God. And then this actually becomes dangerous because you can begin to treat human beings in a very instrumental way. You can do with them what you will. They're no longer sacred. They're no longer special. So, you know, the atheism, the secularism, it is coming to rear its ugly head now. And we need the theologians to do the hard work, especially as they address a 21st century culture, not a 10th century one. We have 21st century problems that that need addressing. Mm. I feel like we've gotten a couple of, of mini sermons here. This has been good. Uh, so <laughs> for those who want to do more reading um, about Methodism, I, I know obviously you're going to want to direct people to Wesley. So let's make this a two-part question. Uh, part one, what of John Wesley would you say would be a good starting point for someone who wants to, to get their feet wet in reading uh, the works of John Wesley? That's part one. And part two, are there other other Methodists, and this relates to what you were just talking about, that you would that you would direct people to go read? So, like you, you mentioned, uh, Thomas Oden. Like I have classic Christianity on my shelf now. I reference that a lot. I really enjoyed his memoir, A Change of Heart. Um, are there outside of Oden, or there other uh, theologians, or or maybe other Methodist historians that we should be reading? Well, there's this guy, uh, Ken Collins, uh, who wrote uh, The Theology of John Wesley, Holy Love and the Shape of Grace. So I think uh, that might be a good place to begin. Uh, but I would also recommend, I've, I've published a volume of Wesley's sermons with Jason Vickers, The Sermons of John Wesley, A Collection for the Christian Journey. And so that would be primary source readings. Um, whereby you would be reading Wesley himself, not some theologian, and therefore you can, you know, digest it for yourself. Um, the one I like the best is Albert Outler. I really do. I'm a big fan of Albert Outler. Um, you know, if you want to go to the next level after you've done some of this preliminary work, I would suggest reading Outler's four volumes of Wesley's sermons and read all the notes that he has. It will be wonderful. Uh, it will stretch us in terms of our faith. It will fill us with knowledge. We'll have proper contextualization uh, so that we can understand with clarity um, his four volumes of sermons in the bicentennial edition of Wesley's works are unmatched. They're unmatched for their scholarship, for their usefulness, their readability. Um, beyond that, I would recommend the Brit, uh, Henry Rack, um, uh, Reasonable Enthusiast. That would be a good place to begin. That will uh, show Wesley in terms of his theological development against the backdrop of the great evangelical revival that's transcontinental in the 18th century from England to America. I'd recommend uh, Frank Baker uh, to read Frank Baker's letters of John Wesley in the critical edition. Um, I would recommend the writings of Ted Campbell, who teaches at SMU. Uh, uh, 
in terms of Methodism and Wesleyanism, he's also very helpful. And he's he's picked up the ball now that uh, Frank Baker is gone and Ted Campbell is continuing uh, the critical condition of uh, tradition of Wesley's letters. Um, then, of course, Randy Maddox is mentioned, uh, his responsible grace. Uh, it might be helpful, actually, to read my book and his book together, and because there are different readings of Wesley, uh, and, you know, the reader could make up their mind for themselves. Uh, you know, is Randy Maddox's view more faithful to the evidence, the primary source evidence, or is my interpretation more faithful to the primary source evidence? So, I mean, those are the major things that I would recommend if you really wanted to go more deeply uh, into the Wesleyan Methodist tradition. So, you know, you mentioned how, I guess, Methodists don't have the long list of, I guess, elite theologians like some of these other traditions. And I think That's right. Bab Baptists are probably similarly minded where they're so focused on mission sometimes that they they don't have this list of the guys who've just sat down for 40 plus years and thought about stuff and written lots of books. I, I do wonder though, I'm curious because I'm sitting here thinking about the massive elite universities that Methodists have. I think of Duke, I think yeah. of SMU. I mean, is there a reason that even though you have these big institutions that seem like serious, serious intellectual heavyweights that the theologians aren't coming from them? Well, we we did have the work of uh, uh, the late Billy Abraham, who just died recently, and he was at SMU, and and he was a shining star to be sure. Uh, and he, you know, shortly before his death, he just issued the fourth volume of his systematic theology. Now, I haven't read all the volumes yet. I read volume one and I've got volume two. I'm working my way slowly through it. But Billy Abraham, you know, William Abraham, I, I should say, you know, uh, would be a good example of, um, of a Wesleyan Methodist theologian. But, but he's gone now and Odin's gone now. Uh, and so we're actually in a difficult situation. I, I don't know how it is for you Baptists, but we're in a difficult situation now because the problems are piling up. They're piling up and they need addressing. Uh, the numbers in the United States today, I'm, I checked this recently, are going down. They continually go down. Fewer and fewer people are identifying as Christian in the United States of America. There's been a significant drop from 1990 to 2021, a significant drop. Uh, you know, we're asleep at the wheel. Uh, you know, people are, are being caught up in other movements that, in my judgment, are not worthy of their attention because the gospel is so much greater, far more beautiful, and will ultimately be more enriching. Yeah, that, that's good. Uh, Billy Abraham, I, I just got to give a comment to him. I love his stuff. So reading his stuff is just a fabulous experience. So uh, I do, man, I, I was so saddened when I, when I saw the news of his passing, that was such unfortunate, but I yes. hope that others can still continue to read him and profit from his work even beyond, uh, his, you know, his death. I was going to ask you about your, what you thought the, the legacy of, of, of Odin is, uh, I know you mentioned his classic Christianity is, 
is not really a systematic in the traditional use of the term and that, you know, it doesn't really address any of the, the current issues that we have going on today, but just his legacy as a whole, what would you say uh, is that for, for Methodists and for the, the universal church? You know, when I think of the legacy of Tom Oden, and, and by the way, I knew Tom Oden uh, fairly well because uh, I'm a graduate. I did my PhD at Drew University. Tom Oden was there when I was there. Uh, I sat in a Tom Oden, John Wesley class at the graduate level. I was in that setting, although I do want to say I had already learned Wesley before I got to that classroom. I had already done my homework because I was a graduate of Asbury Seminary, graduate of Princeton Seminary. I already was familiar with the Wesleyan corpus, but you know, I, I took it at the doctoral level and I took it with Odin and it was good. And he was good. He was very good in terms of John Wesley. I really appreciated it. Um, but I think his legacy, and so I've thought about this question a lot because I knew him personally. I think his legacy will be uh, that commentary series on the fathers that he put so much energy into this massive multi-volume work, which I've used, by the way. I used it in writing uh, Jesus the Stranger. Uh, you know, uh, um, and so uh, I think that's going to be a, a rich part of his legacy because that's going to be ongoing. That's going to go through time. That will endure. The Ancient Church Fathers commentary series that Odin you know, basically launched and saw it through to its many, many volumes of publication. It is a rich heritage. It makes the writings of the fathers accessible, more accessible for today. And that's helpful, uh, especially for the maintenance of Christian orthodoxy. Helpful. Well, this has been super fun interview and helpful. One last question I have before we let you go, you know, my, my wife's family, her side is pretty much, I think all Methodist or Wesleyan in, in some sense, her grandfather graduated from Asbury. Um, so she grew up down, right. Right. What's the town that you guys are in now? I've completely forgotten. Wilmore, Wilmore, yes. Kentucky. Wilmore. So she grew up in yeah. Wilmore. Um, so fond memories uh, of the area and everything. And one thing that I always hear, and I have no idea what it means, is they always talk about camp meeting. So oh, yeah, can you explain yeah. what that is? Well, actually, camp meeting goes back to uh, the Second Great Awakening. Uh, camp meetings really were used to a significant degree in the 19th century and 19th century Methodism. You have to think about it now. In the 19th century, you don't have television, radio, uh, social communication is more difficult. Uh, camp meeting is where people came together. Uh, and so camp meeting was a very useful instrument to proclaim the gospel and to bring people into the church. Um, and it continued on into the 20th century um, I was talking to some people a couple of months ago, and they say, well, camp meetings are, you know, that whole era is basically gone. But, you know, there are still some camp meetings, quote, quote, camp meetings that are held um, in around the country. But that's what it is. People come together for three or four days. There will be pointed preaching. Uh, there may be the celebration of the sacrament, the coming together, the socialization, the prayer. Um, you know, being among one another, edifying one another. It can be a very rich experience. 
That's awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. Collins, for talking with us about all these things. I mean, I've learned a lot even from this own interview and looking through, you've got a, a lot of works that I need to go read. So you, you're <laughs> going to keep me busy for the next couple of months for sure. So thanks for taking the time to talk with us. We thank you for all who've been listening uh, and tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.